Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Today in our Gospel, Luke describes the ministry of John the Baptist as he prepares us for Jesus of Nazareth coming out, coming out as God, first in his baptism and then in his public ministry. Luke's already acquainted us, we're only in chapter 3 of Luke, but he's already acquainted us well with the forerunner, as well as his parents and the other important characters. of the detail of the nativity of Christ. Luke gives us the the greatest detail uh, and the most information about the nativity and the things surrounding Jesus' birth. Following the birth uh, narrative in the first couple chapters of Luke's Gospel, and just in the section right before today's reading, Luke also gives us that really delightful little intermezzo story of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. And we are also very grateful for that. I think all of us would love to have more stories about Jesus when he was a lad. But apparently it was decided by somebody that we'd be better off without them. So we have this one and we cherish it. (laughs) By chapter 3 is where we start today. Jesus is all of a sudden, he goes from 12. From one verse he's 12 and the next verse he's all grown up. He's all grown up and about to go public. But before Luke gets into what he wants to say about the voice, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the voice who's going to articulate the word, he first begins by setting the stage and describing the historical setting of the surrounding world and culture. And we often refer to Luke as the historian, Luke the historian, for good reason. This is the third time he uses this literary approach in three chapters. The third time he sort of synchronizes what's going on with Christ, with the culture, the surrounding culture in a historical context. So he lists the leaders uh, of the time and he begins with the leader of the empire, starts at the top, and he works down through the regional authorities and he ends up with the religious leaders. And Luke's literary purpose in this is to emphasize that this whole gospel, this whole narrative that I'm about to unfold for you, this is a very real historical event, and here are the names of the people, and where they were, and where they ruled at the time time that all of this occurred. So after he gets done with that little introduction, he begins. He begins his description of St. John the Baptist's ministry by quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 40. And... In Luke's Gospel, he translates the passage thus. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low and the crooked will be made straight 
and the rough ways will be made smooth, and all humanity will see the salvation of God. All right, the picture here, the image, what this is about, the idea is that there is this important person, this important figure, a regal figure, a, pen, a prince, a king, okay? He's coming to the region. And so they need to repair the roads, basically. <laughs> they need to make the way straight. That's what this is about. There's this king, and he's coming to our area, and we need to remove the obstacles. We need to straighten out the paths. We need to make the rough places smooth so that he can enter into our city, into our region, unobstructed. We can come in with his great pomp and circumstance and entourage. Now we know that's the image that's painted here by Isaiah and picked up by Luke and applied to St. John. We know the coming king that's being referenced by the prophet is Jesus himself. And we also know from the continuation of the gospel that the rough places and the crooked roads are basically hardened hearts. The way, the process, the instrument by which the crooked will be made straight so that the king can enter in unobstructed is through repentance. Pretty straightforward message. That's what this is all about. The crooked roads are hardened hearts, and those hardened hearts become soft and prepared, unobstructed for the king to enter through repentance. You know, I think most of us are often befuddled by the Jews' rejection of Jesus when we read the Gospels. I mean, it's the same befuddlement when we read the Old Testament, too. <laughs> All the things God did. I mean, we're talking pillars of fire, smoke, thundering mountains, these amazing miracles. And, you know, not, no sooner does this miracle occur and they turn around and they're worshiping calves and sacrificing to Baal. We, we can't get our minds around this. It befuddles us. The same thing happens in the gospel. Jesus comes and does these amazing things. We're talking, we're not talking about abstract stuff. We're talking about real physical evidence. <laughs> real physical evidence. People, you know, being delivered from demons and being healed of being lame and blind and can speak from birth. And everybody witnesses it and sees it and knows that it actually happened. Undeniable miracles. I mean, they tried to kill him after he raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead for four days. They saw him raised, and they still tried to kill him for this. It's bewildering to us how they could reject Christ after all he did. How could this be? How could the Jews, after being delivered through the Red Sea, we're talking the Red Sea parts, right? And they walked through on dry land. And before you know it, they're worshiping a calf. How is this possible? Well, we're told. I mean, we wonder, and, but we're told clearly by Christ, repeatedly in the gospel. We're given the answer to that question. The problem is, is we don't, we don't quite grasp the significance of the answer. <laughs> we don't quite believe it. Because we're all guilty of the same thing, so we don't really want to believe that. Oh, it's got to be something worse. It's got to be something for some, you know, terrible, terrible sinner. Not my kind of sinner. They could do such a thing. But Christ tells us. 
Why did the Jews, why did so many Jews reject the Messiah that they had waited for after he demonstrated and he said, my witness is my works. I mean, I'm raising the dead. What more do you want? I'm him. <laughs> you know the one you've been waiting for? That's me. I'm the one. And they rejected him, blasphemed him, and then killed him on top of all of it. How could they reject him? Here's God in the flesh speaking to them. I mean, the spittle from his face when he's calling them sons of the devil is landing on their face. The spit of God is in their face. The breath of God is in their face. And they reject him. They don't recognize him. How is this possible? And he tells us. Because they had hard hearts. <laughs> That's it. They had hard hearts. I mean hard hearts, okay. I mean, it's no reason to kill him. Just because you got a hard heart. Well, as I said, this is bewildering to us because I don't think we understand what it means to have a truly hardened heart. Or what that could do to a person if it is really, really a hardened heart. And I suppose it's on a scale. <laughs> Thank God it's on a scale. Thank God we don't just like cross a little line in the sand and our heart was soft and then it's hard and we're lost. No, it's on a scale, certainly. A hardened heart, though, makes a person insane. It, it blinds them. It makes them incapable of seeing clearly, of making wise decisions. I mean, we know people who continue to do really, really stupid things. And we think, why, why do they continue to behave this way? My wife does not understand, um, you know, why people... She's just so good. She just does the right thing. And if somebody does something bad, she says, I don't understand why they do that. I'm not, honey, have, do you know anything about, like, sin or, like, how that works? She just seems confused by it. She's so good. But a hardened heart... It blinds us, keeps us from knowing what's what. It takes away our reason. It makes us behave really like beasts. But I want to provide you with a more picturesque image, <laughs> which is not fantasy here. Just And this is, I don't know, PG-13 image. But, you know, if your children are going to read the Bible, uh, <laughs> It's kind of hard to read the Bible and not be receiving this message. So I, I, I give that little excuse up front. But if you were able to see into the spirit realm, to see that which is going on which you can't really see, what you would really see of a person with a really hardened heart, we're talking way over here on the spectrum, kind of the people of caliber of some of those who, who John the Baptist was actually preaching to, you would see a brute, snarling, foaming pet at the end of a leash being jerked violently around by their master, the master of that pet, that critter. And the one holding the end of the leash would be a foul and ugly demon. Now, I know that's a little picturesque. But believe me, I don't have time today. You don't want me to take all the time, but I could prove this to you from the scriptures. That is precisely what is going on. If you could see it in reality. 
That's the reality of someone's heart that is truly, truly hard. Now, I could ask a rhetorical question this morning. Who here would like to be a foaming pet at the end of a demon's leash? Not I. I assume not you either. The good news is we know how to avoid such a condition. It is through repentance and a posture of repentance. Repentance is the cure and the preventative medicine for a hardened heart. A heart is hardened by sin. It's very simple. It's not complicated. A heart is hardened by sin. Especially ongoing, repetitive, unrepented of sin. Which eventually becomes a ruling passion. And it will eventually harden our hearts and turn us into leashed pets of the demons. By the way, the very next verse from our gospel today, after he quotes uh, Isaiah, is John uh, yelling at the people who came out to him uh, and calling them offspring of vipers. (laughs) He says, you offspring of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath that is to come? That's what he says to them right after the portion we just read. Jesus called them worse, by the way. These people with hardened hearts, he called them sons of the devil. John just called them vipers. Jesus called them sons of the devil. Well, the good news is for all of us, it's never too late to come to Jesus and repent and turn in our hardened heart for a heart of flesh. And God loves, God loves a repentant sinner. The angels love a repentant sinner. He loves us when we repent. And he will immediately cut the leash and free us from the demon we've been enslaved to. But it is necessary for us to prepare a smooth way for the coming of Jesus. If we are going to recognize him when he comes to us personally, if we are going to prepare for him when he comes to us personally, to our own hearts, it will require a heart of repentance, of humility, A contrite and humble heart, as the prophet says. A softened heart. Now in this picture I've painted of hard hearts as foul and foaming at the mouth, pets of demons, that may sound scary and disgusting. That sound scary and disgusting? Good. It's supposed to. (laughs) It's supposed to. And the Bible presents us with this picture. I mean quite often actually, quite often, in order to scare us and disgust us. (laughs) We want to be disgusted with such things. Do you want to live for the demons? Like, do you want to be associating with these foul creatures? You should be, uh, we should be aware of this. We should recoil at this. It should disgust us. That's what it means to hate. We We are told in the scriptures to hate. We need to have a perfect hatred. This is what we need to hate. We need to hate anything in our life that would lead us in that direction. And we need to hate it with a perfect hatred. Another little thing that's always struck me is in all of these warnings in the scriptures of going down this path, we're never really told, we're never told actually, we're never given any indication of how long a person might serve the dark lord through sin before they are incapable of making a return to sanity. 
We're never told that information. We all would love to know that information, wouldn't we? Just like, where's the line? How long can I play with fire before it's too late? We are never told that. Quite wisely, doesn't require an explanation that it would not be unwise or even possible for us to have that information. I mean, what we are told is stay on your toes. I mean, this is a good strategy for inspiring us to be serious, to be alert, to stay on our toes. We have not been given permission to play with fire. We have not been permission to hang out on the edge of righteousness or sin until the last moment. That's a very dangerous game to play for which we are warned. So John was sent by God. He was sent by God to reveal who Jesus really was. That's what he was sent to do. He's pretty much going to open up the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth that he is God in the flesh. And this is going to be a very, very difficult message for the Jews to receive, for the world to receive. An impossible message. And so John was prepared from the beginning of time. And that's why he's so great. And anybody with a hard heart, anybody who might be on a demon's leash, was not going to be able to accept this. Even the people with moderately hard hearts, or even soft hearts, were going to find this message difficult. And so John was sent to preach repentance and prepare the hearts to receive the message of Jesus Christ. He was sent to remove the obstacles so that the good news of the coming king would flow into people's hearts and bring them freedom. Because he came precisely to vanquish and destroy these very demons that had people under their sway. But the failure to repent, the failure to repent meant continued enslavement and blindness to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so the answer of why they rejected Christ was because they had hard hearts. And hard hearts come from sin. And sin that is left unrepented of will harden someone's heart to the point that they will no longer be able to see Christ and receive Christ. Now, it's no different for us. Yes, we've been baptized. Yes, we're believers. All that is true, but we are still admonished by the gospel to continue in the faith we began because our hearts can still become hardened, and we're warned of that in the scriptures again and again as well. So this is something that should concern us, keep us on our toes, really keep us on our knees, I should say. Because the end, otherwise, is not pretty. Now in Isaiah, in this passage, in chapter 40, the message of Advent and Christmas comes across clear. I mean, this is not all dire, what I'm trying to present here this morning. The real message in all of this is a message of hope and comfort. <laughs> That's what the message is. It's a message of comfort and joy. It's just that it has a warning with it. I mean, there's a cab, there's fine print. You can't have the joy. The joy costs something. Okay? And that's the important part. That's what our modern progressive Christianity wants to sort of blot out the fine print. Doesn't cost you anything. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. It's a message of comfort for those who repent. And that caveat's always included in the message. John 
God, through Isaiah, tells John, the Baptist, in Isaiah chapter 40, how he wants him to approach this message of repentance that he's going to bring uh, during the time of Christ. He says to him, he says to John, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah is telling John, this is, this is how you're to go about this. This is what your message consists of. The one who's going to call them brood of vipers. Comfort, <laughs> comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. I wonder what John would have thought not speaking kindly sounded like. <laughs> Anyway, speak kindly to Jerusalem and tell her that her time of warfare is over. That's wonderful. That's good news. The time of warfare is over. Our enslavement to the devil and to death is over. God is setting us free. He's cutting the chain and we are comforted by this great news. Her time as warfare is over and he goes on. Now that her punishment is completed. Okay, <laughs> that's the second half. Now that her punishment is completed. Okay, she's been enslaved to an enemy. She's been in warfare, which is now being referred to as punishment. By who? By God. God punished Israel through enslavement and through this warfare. Then he goes on just to, Add insult to injury. For the Lord has made her pay double for all her sins. So there's that part of the message, too. But the headline is comfort, comfort. The headline is comfort, comfort. The small print is, we don't get the comfort, comfort <laughs> until we repent. Until we heed the message of repentance. Till we humble ourselves. But that's all we have to do. And that's something we have to do. You know, she had to pay. She had to pay double. She had to go through suffering. She had to even go through enslavement. She had to even go through chastisement and discipline, even at the hands of the demons. I mean, what do you think they're around for? <laughs> I mean, God's no fool. God is sovereign. He uses everything for our redemption. We don't understand that. We have our time with that. But it's the truth. So he uses it all. The good and the bad and the ugly. And we got to go through it if our hearts are going to be made soft. But they can be made soft very easily if we'll just repent. Humble ourselves. That's the way past and through the punishment is through repentance. And God can't do that for us. He can enable us with his grace, but he can't do it for us. But if we do it, there is great, great comfort. Because in reality, our warfare is over. It really is over. As I said last night, the only danger, the only real danger that we face is a failure to repent. That's the only real danger that we face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.